Let me start by asking you this. Um, I think I know the answer already. You guys get a little bit tired of politics. <laughs> you know, there was a lot of railing in, in the last political season, which I don't even know if the political season is over. I don't really care at this point, but um, I care about a lot of things, but whether that season is what, anyway, I'm rambling. Here's what I'm trying to say. Uh, there's a lot of rallying against politics as usual, yeah? Both on the right and the left. And two of the most popular candidates basically said that the system was rigged, right? Right? And if we're honest, it does seem like many or most or a lot of the politicians running things seem to be more interested in power than service. Kind of, right? And... It seems like staying in office, appeasing people who give the most money, giving their party the advantage as a first priority above what can help the most people is the general rule, and people are fed up. In fact, and I shared these numbers with you a while ago, but I was reminded of them again. According to public policy polling, Congress right now, well, actually, Congress before this last election cycle, was less popular than lice, <laughs> Brussels sprouts, which I think that's kind of, I like Brussels, anyway, <laughs> replacement referees, <laughs> colonoscopies, true story, root canals, traffic jams, and yes, I am not making this up, cockroaches. Not making that up. And one of the few things that Congress was actually able to beat out was the Ebola virus. So they got that going for them. Although, this poll was taken before the last election cycle. So Ebola, you still got a chance. But seriously, everything that's been happening recently has reminded me of a book I read for class decades ago. It was a book called The Prince by Machiavelli. Maybe some of you have heard of it. And this work is most famous for advocating uh, manipulation and occasional cruelty to get what you want out of life. And ideas like the ends justify the means or it's better to be feared than loved are popular adaptations of the ideas in Machiavelli's book. And today, by and large, the, term Machia- the name Machiavelli or the term Machiavellian is considered a negative thing. It's not something you want to be. But at the same time, his ideas, in some ways, are more readily embraced than you might think. So, for example, um, I read an article that talked about a book called The Power Paradox, written by Robert Greene. And And this is what the article said. Almost 500 years later, Robert Greene's national bestseller, The 48 Laws of Power, would have Machiavelli chest swelling with pride. Greene's book, besides re, uh, a Green's book, Bedside Reading of Foreign Policy Analysts and Hip Hop st- Stars Alike, is pure Machiavelli. Here are a few of his 48 laws. These are laws from the book. Law number three Conceal your intentions. 
Law number six, court attention at all costs. Law number seven, get others to do the work for you, but always take the credit. Law number 12, use selective honesty and generosity to disarm your victims. Law 15, crush your enemy totally. Law 18, keep others in suspended terror. Cultivate an air of unpredictability. You get the picture. And guided by centuries of advice like Machiavelli's and Green's, we tend to believe that attaining power requires force, deception, manipulation, and coercion. And really, we might even assume that positions of power demand this kind of conduct from us. That to run smoothly, society needs leaders who are willing and able to use power in this way. And no one is arguing that these tactics do not work. They do. Sometimes in grand fashion. But where do they leave you in the end? Jesus said a lot of famous things, right? But one of the things that he said that's very famous, you've probably heard it before, is this. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? Can you finish first and not be a jerk? Can you succeed in life, have goals, achieve them, be a leader, and keep your soul intact? Well, you might imagine the answer today is yes. (laughs) Yes. And childlike faith has something to do with it. This is our second week in sort of a mini-series, a short series on childlike faith. And we're going to take a look at what Jesus has to say about it. And how it can inform how we live, how we have ambition, how we have dreams, how we pursue those things so that we might actually achieve them and be happy with the person we are when we do. Let's read Matthew 18, the first five verses. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Now in this passage, there's probably so much to learn, but there's two messages that really stood out to me this week as I was preparing And I think these two messages from Jesus can help us make sense of a world where it seems like Machiavellian approaches often work. And quite honestly, they do. The first message is this. You can be great. You can be great. And here's how. Now, one thing I find really intriguing is the way that Jesus interacts with his disciples in this passage. They want to know who's the greatest. They want to know how they can be the greatest. And presumably, they want to know where they rank and how they can move up the ladder. And it's kind of an audacious question to ask. 
And so you might expect, and actually, when I read this, I expect Jesus to really put these disciples in their place. Cut them down a few pegs. You know, who are they to think that they can be the greatest? Because that's what they're getting at. They want to be the greatest, and they want Jesus to tell them how they can be the greatest in his kingdom. Because they're expecting him to set up a kingdom on earth, and kingdoms have hierarchies. And there are people at the top, there are people in the middle, and there are a lot of people at the bottom, typically. Yeah? And so they want to know how they can at least be in the middle and hopefully be on top. But Jesus doesn't undercut them. He doesn't say, who do you think you are? In fact, they ask the question, basically, how can we be the greatest? How can we be great? And then he gives them an answer. And there's a lot going on here. He's certainly making his points. But at the end of the day, he's actually telling them how they can be great. You see, saying, who do you think you are? could have and probably would have been a really devastating blow to his disciples. Some of you here today, you know exactly what I mean. Who do you think you are? That's actually the internal dialogue that's always running in your head. Or maybe you have had the experience of sharing your heart and your dreams with someone. You've opened up like Jesus does here, or like Jesus' disciples do here. And you were answered with, who do you think you are? Don't get out of your place. You know, when I, I'm a worship leader, and when I was in a student, I used to bum people's guitars all the time. Full disclosure, I used to borrow their guitars and break their strings and just give them the guitar back. You know, when you're 19, 20, what do you, you know, it's kind of rude. But I loved worship songs. I loved being in the presence of God in worship, still leading worship to this day. And I remember I was like, I wrote a song. And I thought, I'm going to sneak this in because I was invited to lead worship at a smaller church event. I'm, gonna, I'm not just going to sneak this song in and see how it goes. So I remember leading worship. It was, it was basically just me and a guitar. And I remember doing the song. I remember, and I asked the person leading the meeting afterwards. I was like, he was a person of authority in my life, people, person who could speak into my life. And a person I think kind of had an inkling, oh, I don't know that song. And I think kind of knew, maybe I wrote it. And I said, what did you think of that song? And he said, well, it wasn't as good as the other ones. I don't know if you've ever remember this ancient classic video game called Pac-Man. <laughs> Going around eating all the pellets trying to run away from the ghosts, but when the ghosts touch him, he dies, and he goes, boo, 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 boo. That's kind of what happened to me. And honestly, and maybe I should change this, I haven't written a worship song since. I think I was maybe 20, I'm 42. Who do you think you are? That's the last thing Jesus wants to say to you if you want your life to make a difference. If you want to be great, I read this book called Heroic Leadership by Chris Lowney. And in that book, he does the study of the leadership principles that you can see in the Jesuits. Because he says, look at this amazing, it's a business book, but he says, look at this amazing company, the Jesuits, who started, and in 400, 450 years, they did all these amazing things. And it's the largest um, 
not sect, but uh, I can't think of the word right now, the largest group of priests in the Catholic Church now. And he, he tells the story, Pope Francis is a Jesuit, and he tells a story of a man named Pedro Abandonera, an early Jesuit leader. And he was having a meeting with the king of Spain, and he gushed to the king. He said, all the well-being of Christianity and of the whole world depended on the work of one group of people. Who? Cardinals in Rome? Kings of Europe? Armies of Spain? His answer? High school teachers. Lonnie writes this. He says, heroic leadership is not just teaching high school kids, but looking past the spitballs to see the well-being of the whole world depends on what you're doing. It's the restless drive to look for something more in every opportunity and the confidence that one will find it. It's not the job that's heroic. It's the attitude one brings to it. And the idea here, I think, is that whatever you do, if God has given it to you to do, you can make a difference and it can be great. And it wasn't easy for Pedro. Pedro talks of being annoyed, burdened, and strained uh, by a group of high school students who aren't necessarily renowned for being super thankful. But in the first 40 years of their existence, first 40 years, the Jesuits, who started with 10 members in 1540, had established 150 colleges, and by the mid-18th century, it's estimated that they were educating about 20% of Europeans pursuing a classical higher education. Service can change the world for the better. And I think ambition isn't something that Jesus wants to squash out of your life. Ambition, I think, can be good if it's focused outside of ourselves. If it's focused on seeing the kingdom of God come, the world become a better place, of seeing things change, of seeing justice come to communities that have been traditionally oppressed. Jesus didn't want his disciples to lose this godly ambition to change the world, and he wants you to know the same thing. What you do can have significance. If you want to be great, as the Aussies say, good on you. Go for it. Live to be great. It isn't easy, and we can easily get off track, but there's an approach that works. So first, Jesus is like, all right, I'm not going to undercut these people and tell them not to be great, but I am going to tell them a different way to go about it. Because I don't think Jesus, I can say this pretty securely, was a big fan of Machiavelli. Although Machiavelli comes later. (laughs) But he wasn't a big fan. All right? And what's the approach that works? It's serving people that cannot help you. And whomever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Here's the thing about children. They have the least power in our society. They can't vote. They don't have any money. They're weak physically. They aren't yet educated. They're naive. They can't get you a job or a promotion or a connection. In fact, sometimes people see children as more of a hindrance than a blessing. 
And so Jesus says, welcome them. Take time for them. Invest your resources in them. Serve them. And look, I know, I know, we don't really like to serve anyone. Here's how I know it. (laughs) We tend to look down on people who are in positions of service. When my wife and I, Becca, first moved here and we were getting the church started, I spent about three years working in a call center to pay the bills while the church was being established. Let's just say I didn't always feel particularly appreciated for my service. I was always trying to help people, but sometimes when the person on the other end of the line didn't like what I was saying, they felt perfectly justified in calling me names like stupid, or perhaps other fancy four-letter words. And I could tell they felt justified in putting me down. After all, I was there to serve them. And it's no wonder. Just a little bit ago, I read an article about a strike of telecommunication operators who the final straw for them was that management had introduced a new operating procedure that insisted that every call be ended with the phrase, did I provide you with outstanding service today? That was it. That put them over the edge. We don't necessarily want to serve anyone, let alone someone who can't possibly help us get ahead or help us in any way. But Jesus actually says this is the way to get to the top, to be the greatest. Serve those who can't help you. Serve kids. Or, I think, even other people who it's hard to see the benefit to yourself in serving them. Now, we'll come back around to why I think this is, or one of the reasons I think this is. But for now, I just want you to know, his message, his method to the top was serve people who can't help you. Which certainly doesn't make a lot of sense on the surface, does it? I mean, honestly, we're going to come back to that. He had another message here that was very clear. And message number two was this. So this idea of serving people who can't help you, children are an example of that. I think that's all well and good. I wouldn't have said it if I didn't think that was one of his messages. But another message was just simply, children are very important. There's one key verse that makes this very clear. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Welcomes me. Serving a child brings us, according to Jesus, into the real presence of Jesus. The idea here is that as one welcomes, serves, loves, invests in a child, that you are treading on sacred ground. That we meet God and experience the power of the universe right there. Everyone upstairs working right now with our children... And with our youth, they have the opportunity to engage with God in ways that you and I down here don't. That's something, I think, to think about. If you want to experience more of the presence of God, you might want to consider volunteering with our kids' ministry. Seriously. Here's why. Children can give more than they receive. Children can give more than they receive. But really, it's not so much up to the children as it is up to us and our perspective and our attitudes and the way we approach children. I think perhaps um, inspired by Pedro uh, Rabandanera that I mentioned earlier or just the fact that Jesus 
clearly points to welcoming Jesus or children in this passage. I reached out to a few of my friends this week who are teachers to see if this is true. If they actually have learned from their students or encountered God because of their interaction with their students. So one teacher wrote me. I'm going to share a couple of these stories. Wrote me about Gregory. He says, Gregory is a funny and sensitive seventh grader. Those two traits are often indistinguishable from each other in him when at times he seems sad for no reason. I later find out that either he was joking or he was really sad. In math class, these emotions sometimes come out and I try to navigate how to deal with them. In his particular class, there are four of the smartest and most motivated students I've ever taught. I soon found out Gregory was wanting me to see him like I see them. At first, I interpreted him as joking, seemingly to get offended easily, and saying I give them special treatment. Being overdramatic can be part of his humor, but his persistence eventually made it clear to me that he was right. I treated those four students different than him. For example, I would give them more challenging work, or when reviewing for a test, the Fantastic Four would want to take the test right away so, I'd, so they can begin it while I was reviewing with the rest of the class. When Gregory saw me give the test to them, he wanted to start the test early as well. Greg taught me not to disregard people based on what my immediate impressions are of them. I thought of him as a funny and sensitive kid. Smart? Sure, but not like the others. Turns out I was wrong. I'm learning every day how capable, smart, and motivated he is. Just today, in a very difficult multi-step word problem, he was the only student giving me each correct step along the way. When we got to the final answer, he made a small mistake and got the numbers backwards. When I told him the right answer, he refused to accept it. This is something Chandra, one of the four, would do, and I'm proud of her for it. Don't accept an answer just because the teacher tells you it's true. Challenge it and demand to know why it's true. For Gregory, I was happy to be forced into going into detail about why the answer was 12 over 8 and not 8 over 12. And in the end, I'm not sure he was convinced. But he seemed appeased enough, until the next problem at least, where I hope he challenges me again. <clears throat> not just in my mathematical reasoning, but in my preconceptions of him as well. I talked to another teacher. Well, I didn't talk to him. He emailed me. And he said this, I taught a sixth grader, let's call her Doreen, during the first few weeks of my first real teaching job. It was a small but needy group, and almost every day the tone of the class became more and more anxious until finally Doreen would ask, can I go upstairs? My response was no. I had so many reasons for this answer. I was right in the middle of explaining something. I had just begun giving directions. Doreen just came back from the bathroom. I was only able to send out one kid at a time. Well, one day, I loosened my grip a bit on my own agenda long enough to realize I had no idea what upstairs was. We were on the ground floor. An entire three-quarters of the facility was upstairs to us. I became curious. I realized that I hadn't shown any compassion to her at all in my reply. I could have communicated so much by just asking, what's upstairs, Doreen? So that day, I finally asked her. I walked up close to her, I knelt down and asked, and she told me about the emotional support classroom she had just transitioned out of earlier in the year. It was up on the third floor. Of course, 
This changed everything for me. And asking to understand, I closed the space between us, a noisy, murky space I had allowed to grow, where there was nothing but a dissonance of emotions. Curiosity is the most underused tool in relating to others, especially children. True curiosity is judgment-free. When someone wonders, they ask after your need, not their own. When someone is truly interested, they don't have a particular response in mind. Every child I've struggled alongside has taught me this lesson. One more story. It's a little bit longer, but I think it's worth it. In my first year of teaching in North Philadelphia, 10 years ago, I was emotionally ripe, he writes. Kind of like a grape, thin-skinned, mostly juice. I felt every setback, every truant student, every hallway fight. I took it all to heart, emoting, emoting, emoting. And midway through the year, after a particularly bad incident in the hallway, in which I sustained a bloody nose as a result of tearing two teenagers off of each other, I made the decision that I was done feeling everything. I determined that in order to sustain my life, in the teaching profession, I had to develop a few calluses. I made this decision while weeping in my classroom. I turned to God in this moment, and I prayed. I actually prayed that God would harden my heart. I wanted rougher edges and deeper calluses so that I could teach without being reduced into intense feelings every time a disaster struck, because, well, disaster struck a lot in my school. And the prayer was answered. God built a callus for me, and this hardening made my job more sustainable, and it made my life more sustainable. I evolved into a, quote, tough, no-nonsense, but, quote, good teacher who, quote, didn't play. And for a good while, I thrived in the profession. But a hardened heart doesn't come without consequences. Too much strictness, not enough personality, too many interactions with students that lacked compassion, too many decisions made that put myself at the center and not my students, put them on the periphery. Too much time keeping a passionate heart in check. In my third year, I had the privilege of teaching Armand. He was a grape, thin-skinned, mostly juice. He was the most hug-worthy thing in the whole school. He was tender and incredible to observe. He battled deeply with speech and learning impediments. He was short and stout with a buzz cut and a full mustache. He was an easy target from the mean-spirited ninth graders who were his opposite. Physically whole, but broken in spirit. It was Armand's unbroken good spirit that I remember most about him. But as I mentioned, his good spirit was often put to the test. One spring day in particular, he was being emotionally berated and on my watch. I was at my desk working when I glanced over to see Armand in tears. Not just tears, sobbing. I took quick stock of the situation and determined that Armand needed to leave the current atmosphere and quickly. I helped him into the hall where I began to ask questions. I don't remember the specifics of what the other students whispered to him, only that the whispers came in waves that left him wrecked. He tried to speak through snot and heaving sobs but couldn't. And at some point, while listening and consoling, I too broke. I said, oh, my sweet Armand and began sobbing, nearly matching him in my lack of control. 
I took him in my arms and told him that I was there. And snot poured out of my nose, tears ran down my cheeks. Other students passed, concerned. <laughs> we must have been a spectacle, but judgments be damned, it was a beautiful and courageous moment of human brokenness. I did more than just cry with Armand that day. I recovered something. Or better yet, Armand helped me recover something. It was a long, dormant softness. It was the depth of feeling that I had prayed and stuffed away. It was the anti-callous. Armand reminded me that to be a teacher, to be a leader, was to feel for my students, to feel with my students, and to let my grape-like heart be my guide to effectiveness, a messy, bloody organ of love. Interactions with teenagers have dominated my professional life. They are a confusing, complex, tangled, and shimmering web of emotional, physical, intellectual, and physical energy. Those brave and willing enough to walk into that web will often draw near the truths of God. Openness to unlikely people. Curiosity. An open heart. Empathy. Humility. Can you see the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of these adults? Can you see how the things that they are learning from their interactions with people that most people would consider don't have anything to offer them, right? it's actually changing them and shaping them and creating perspectives that get them outside of themselves, that run contrary to the 48 laws. Jesus knows that real power, the real divine, is found not in connecting to the top, but in being rooted in the so-called bottom. That's where the divine lives. That's where you find Jesus. If you want to find Jesus, don't waste your time on Capitol Hill or in the boardroom or in the C-suite of a multinational corporation. He is everywhere, yes. But if you want to experience him, hold a baby in the nursery. Teach preschoolers. Take the kids on the block to a Phillies game. Get to know someone down on their luck and welcome them. Give to those people and be open to learn. That's what shapes you so that as you move forward with the great godly ambition to see the world change and become better, you can do it from that perspective. Those things can shape and remind and form you so you don't become a jerk if by the grace of God you actually get there or you see some of your prayers answered or you get to the top even or you end up at Capitol Hill. Starts at the bottom.
See, when we find ourselves experiencing the sacred, it informs our ambition to change the world. We just can't practice the 48 laws. Suddenly, it isn't better to be feared than loved, and the ends no longer justify the means. And we can live to make the world a better place without abusing people along the way. We then can pursue greatness without becoming a jerk because we've experienced God through the so-called lowest, and that has changed everything. Let's pray. Jesus, I just feel like we sense your presence in this room. You said, if you do it to the least of these, you do it to me. If you welcome one of these in my name, you welcome me. Let us be people who so want your presence that we find you where you say that you are. And we ask for this grace. We confess our weakness. And we look to you for faith. Amen. If you're on our worship team, please come on, make your way up here. Um, I want to introduce our prayer representative. People pray before the service. Ask God for impressions. It's one of those, hey, maybe God is actually here right now. And Kenny's going to share some of the impressions that they have.